conflict creates character. And I think if you don't have conflict, whether it's in work and your discussions and your questions and your answers, you're never going to learn as much. So being willing to put yourself out there and try to communicate how much you don't know as a way to learn more seems like a good place to start as any. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure, and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest in this episode is Arthur Matuszewski, who's in charge of talent for Better.com, a home ownership startup that's growing exponentially, three and a half times year over year. As you can surmise, this type of growth is no simple feat, but Arthur takes great pride in the company and how they attract talent. They don't like defining people with predetermined categories or forcing people to fit into a specific box. He says, by allowing employees to do what they do best and giving them an opportunity to learn, it allows them to attract the best talent. What do you say we dive right in? Arthur Matuszewski, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming, my friend. I uh, especially appreciate you carving out time on a Sunday evening to sit down with me to talk about your background, what you're doing, and how you're changing the world. No better way to spend a Sunday. Thank you, Adam. Really appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> uh, thank you. We're going to have some fun. I absolutely love your energy. You're kind of like zest for life. Is that something that has like been instilled in you since a little boy? Or is this something that has just kind of grown? <laughs> I think I've always felt grateful. And as life's gone on, I've been fortunate to have more things to be grateful for. So I think the energy largely comes from that. Yeah, I like that. Would you define yourself? Would you fall into a camp of a introvert, extrovert, or you, you kind of toggle in between centrovert, ambivert? So I just took the MBTI. We're uh, doing a bunch of testing uh, here at work, and I'm basically a dog. And so 100% on the side of thinking externally, getting energy from others. Awesome. What prompted you to do the MBTI? So we're always interested in figuring out how we can find the diamonds in the rough, if you will. We're looking at the MBTI as well as a number of other tests to help us do that better. None of these things are perfect. Yeah. It's all kind of painting with dots. But what we want to get better is making sure that we have the right dots and the right collection of data points to help us find the right collection of folks. I like that. Is that something that kind of came from you? Is that like an internal strategy? I'm always curious yeah, yeah. to where this comes we're, from. Yeah, so I'd done a little bit of this work while at Bridgewater. Bridgewater was very much on the side of finding the one in 10,000. And so anything we could do to make that filtering happen better, we were about. 
here, we have a little bit of a unique challenge where we're looking for not only the one in 10,000, but we're actually looking for 10,000 <laughs> as we're uh, in hyper growth mode and beyond. So it's been this really unique challenge to bridge all this interest, all this energy, all this activity coming to us, while also making sure that we're screening for the things that matter. So that zest for hard work, that desire to be curious, desire to learn, a lot less of the traditional sort of skills-based profiling that I think a lot of other places tend to index off of. Yeah, I really like that. So what I'd like to do with this show, if it's all right with you, I'd like to kind of whip through a couple of like rapid fire questions just to give the audience a better sense for kind of who you are, your personality, style. I'm sure they already did within these first minute or two, but- uh, <laughs> Let's do it. All right, beautiful. So let me ask you this. What was the last time you did a push-up? Probably within the last couple of weeks. Not having a gym, honestly, has, has done a number on me, but I've got mm. a pull-up bar outside the door here. So I've been doing a couple of those a day and keeping the gym away. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, tell me about a habit that you have, whether good, bad, or, or indifferent. I say helpful a lot. I don't know if it's indifferent or bad, but I think it sometimes gets to the point uh, where folks are wondering, is this really helpful? I think I generally try to presume positive intent in others, and sometimes that doesn't always translate too well. And much better than the alternative. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other things I probably say too frequently, but helpful is one of them. <laughs> interesting. So, you know, I'll tell you, it was interesting. Somebody, um, God, this is years ago, one of the first bosses I ever had, I used to say, and what not. I yeah, hear yeah. other people. Et cetera, that, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So what he did, every time I said that, he just repeated it. And I just realized how much I was saying it. And then I got so annoyed of hearing him say it. I'm like, God, it must be, am I really saying it that often? So uh, it, it worked for me, just throwing it out there. That's um, a good tech. Yeah. Tell me something that most people don't know about you. And now they're gonna. <laughs> now they're gonna. Let's see. I must have been early 20s when I found out I was adopted for the first time. And so it really kind of framed a lot of this gratitude that I had mentioned early mm. on in a meaningful way for me. But it's since become something that I'm a little bit more open about, but obviously not singing from the rooftops. <laughs> well, I appreciate that share. I actually have a couple of uh, other good friends that went through the same. Yeah, it was really interesting just that. And your parents, I, mean, I tip my hat to them. I, yeah, have, thank I you. also have friends that have uh, adopted as well. So I know that there's just so much bigger and deeper on so many levels. So kudos, I really, I appreciate you sharing that, especially with everybody. So thank you for that. Of course. Talk to me about a piece of technology that you couldn't live without. I tend to be, be compulsive about a few things, but my pen and mainly the pen, but the notebook is helpful. I'll write on anything I find. But if I am without my pen, I feel like I lost something. And so it's one of these things where I've gone through so many pairs of pants, just having washed the same pen over and over. But it's the simplest technology is sometimes the best. Are you a list guy? I like lists. Yeah, I have like too many post-it notes around um, tend to subscribe to this only handle it once idea, mm -hmm. which tends to work when you have a certain amount of things. When you get a certain amount plus 20%, it starts to break down. But if you can deal with it in the moment, definitely better than letting it build up. Gotcha. What about all this octane that you've got inside you? Tell me about that. <laughs> I don't know. I grew up in Queens and my orientation was I might not be the smartest, I might not be the fastest, but I just need to figure it out. And so if nothing else, I think just working harder is a good antidote for a lot of things. Mm, what's that saying that uh, hustle beats talent when talent doesn't hustle? Something to that effect, yeah. Nice. 
I don't know about you not having talent, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little later. Um, so if you don't mind, give the audience an, an overview kind of who you are, where you're working, what you're doing. And then what I'd like to do is kind of get a little more granular with some of the questions that are hopefully you'll share with us some secret sauce. Happy to jump into it. So I'm currently responsible for talent at better.com. We're a digital homeownership platform helping customers get the home that they love. Ultimately, we're in an exciting phase of hyper growth. We've gone from little less than 500 people at the beginning of last year to a little north of 2000 now. And have been fortunate enough to add something like 400 additional colleagues since COVID. So we're trying to get you the best product at the best price. And to do that, we're focused on creating a company that is powered by a collection of folks that are curious, that are capable, and that really want to flip the mortgage industry on its head. And that you have been doing. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about it. How do you do that? I mean, that's a massive, I mean, hyper growth. That's an understatement, especially given here we are, I don't know, two months plus into, you know, the, the world's been shook up and yet you hired 400 people. How do you do that? The fundamentals start with getting the right people on the team. I think I was fortunate to come into an organization that had already been built around this core ethos of willingness to question convention, desire to actually build things for the long haul. I think there's this idea that um, I think is particularly prevalent in sort of the Silicon Valley throw venture dollars at everything mentality that the way you get ahead is by buying customers, spending on advertising, spending on brand. In our case, we spent a number of years actually building the platform. And so that's the same approach we've taken to building the talent team to be able to actually grow the company as much as we have. You know, there's that saying of if you're going to chop down a tree, you know, spend your time sharpening the axe. And in our case, that axe has been a focus on the people conversations that we're having uh, with the talent markets on the processes behind that. So how do we get our cycle times down? How do we make sure that we're responding to candidates in ways that are quick and human and real while also looking to technology to automate all the things that humans can't do well? So, you know, whether it's finding data, sorting data, reporting data, all those things, our lean has always been to figure out how to augment the work of human potential rather than try to replace it. And then how, if you don't mind, give us a little overview of your background and like what qualified you to be in this position and what it is that you've brought with your previous experiences into the mix of better. So prior to Better, I was with Wayfair. So instead of looking for the whole home, we were looking for everything inside the home. And while there, it helped us go from 5,000 to a little bit north of 15,000. And so spent a lot of time trying to answer these similar questions of how do you find all the right people? How do you get your name out there? And then how do you help sort those people once you've already built a pretty large machine? The way I actually found Wayfair was I had been looking to start firm focused on using technology to find customer service and call center folks with more of an atypical background. So bringing folks out of retail, out of hospitality, et cetera. And as I was diligencing prospective customers, got introduced to Wayfair. Before that, I had spent a number of years in innovation strategy, which was a fancy marriage of product strategy and commercial strategy. And so helping big, boring companies do more interesting things. And then before that, I had actually worked on a marijuana venture. 
And so it was a different kind of growth. What was out in Colorado uh, trying to create a line of feelings. So every time you smoke, you get energy, joy, tranquility. Ultimately, pardoning the second pun, it went up in smoke, but it was a good experience nonetheless. And then before that, I had spent a number of years at Bridgewater, which is a big, weird hedge fund, but really focused on getting sort of talent and culture right. So sort of collection of experiences, definitely not a linear path. But for me, it was always around figuring out what individuals and institutions value and then trying to build ways to match people to that better and better. No pun intended. That is a motley crew of uh, industries and experiences. Were you able or are you able to identify a common thread of success at each and every one of these organizations that you worked at, even the cannabis one, even though, listen, things just sometimes don't work out. So without a doubt, the only ones for me are the mad ones. I think following people that are trying to do things that either haven't been done or that aren't being done in a conventional way, whether it's getting millennials couches faster, whether it's helping more people get a home without a handshake, whether it's helping bottle all the confusion and chaos of cannabis and create something that's a steady experience. These are all trades that are sort of atypical and not ones that are sort of following the mean. Mm. And so for me, I think a lot of my own opportunity and a lot of my gratitude comes from having worked with folks that were willing to challenge me and challenge themselves to think differently. I think there's lots of jobs and lots of paths I could have taken that were a lot more cut and dry. And for me, the alpha came from finding folks that were willing to question things and willing to give me a shot to do that with them. Interesting. So what would you say is the biggest skill set that you've acquired throughout all of these experiences that's helped you to be so successful and to you know the success of these other organizations? I think the main ability for me is curiosity. When I had been in high school, I remember taking all these journalism courses and would take the subway from Queens to the city. And part of the assignment was just go around and talk to people, whether it was the hot dog vendor, whether it was the guy in the MTA booth, and just ask them questions. So I think you'll be surprised uh, by how many people are willing to just entertain questions out of the blue. And I think consistently, like when I had applied to Bridgewater, my only professional experience was having started a babysitting company. So I didn't know what a hedge fund was, but I remember asking the interviewer, you know, what brought him to the hedge fund, how he wound up there. And then he asked me if I knew what a hedge fund was. And I read the Wikipedia description of a hedge fund. He asked me if I read the Wikipedia description (laughs) of a hedge fund. I said, yes. And then I talked about, and then he asked me why I thought that would be a good idea. And I told him, I don't know. And I figured he would want me to know the answer. And why was he asking? And then it turned into a good conversation about having a culture of constantly questioning. And so in the scheme of things, I think you're either lucky or you're great. And, you know, for some folks, like it pays off to be both lucky and great if you have the privilege and fortune to do that. And so I feel tremendously, you know, fortunate for all the chances and opportunities I've had, but I realize that my actions or my intentions are only a small part of that narrative. So interesting. So I'm going to throw something back at you. Let's say someone, you're, you're meeting with somebody and you're impressed with them. And then you ask them to explain the online mortgage industry or whatever, however it is that you guys are defining this new venture that you're in. And they regurgitate back to you just something that they read on Wikipedia. How do you respond to that now? What would you do? 
I think what do you think <laughs> and asking that intently goes a long way. Yeah. Like, yes, that's what's on Wikipedia. But for me, the value in being asked that question as the interviewee wasn't having to come up with my own answer. I think roughly this is why hedge funds exist. I'm not sure. This is kind of something I know and I'm pattern matching to that. I think you never want to be in a position as an interviewer, as a candidate for having to learn exactly what someone else tells you to think. Mm. I think it's more important to learn how to think. And so for me, whether it's asking folks, okay, great that you read our LinkedIn, great that you read our bios online, but why do you think this is interesting? Like, what about this gets you excited? What about this makes you worried? And sometimes the questions go to really productive territories. Sometimes Mm -hmm. folks are asking, well, what's the point of this? If mortgage is a dirty word, like, how do you make it not dirty? And the, the rub is that conflict creates character. And I think if you don't have conflict, whether it's in work and your discussions and your questions and your answers, you're never going to learn as much. So being willing to put yourself out there and try to communicate how much you don't know as a way to learn more seems like a good place to start as any. I like that. You're looking to see where the rubber hits the road with these people. You want to dig deep. You want where that wave crashes with these individuals. Yeah. I think for us, we're really afters. You know, we've built the platform. The platform does the math. The platform figures out how much home folks can afford. But the real challenge is in communicating what that value is to an individual consumer. And so if folks are looking to move to a different neighborhood, it might be to go to a better school. It might be to be closer to family. It might be to be with a community that they feel safe and supported by. And a lot of our work is not in sort of the nuts and bolts that a spreadsheet can do, but in really meeting customers where they are and communicating something that is complicated, which relates to interest rates, which relates to your credit history, which relates to what's going on in the world in a simple way that is human and real. And I think the same applies to our candidates. If we're trying to pretend that we're very hierarchical organization with boxes and titles and fancy skills and all that, then we're ultimately not in a place where we're going to attract the best folks if we can't be open-minded and lateral around how we make those connections. That's an awesome answer. (laughs) In your opinion, what are your top performers doing differently than the average performers? Yeah, I think we're definitely still digging into this. And so I'm sure we'll learn more over time. I think the common traits of top performers are this willingness to admit what they don't know, and then close that gap as quickly as possible. And so it's not enough to say, I don't know, I'm going to sit on my hands until someone explains it to me. You have to acknowledge, I don't know. And this is how I'm Googling, how I'm searching, how I'm asking friends, how I'm using all my lifelines to get to wherever I need to go. For us, the high performers that have been promoted up consistently, that have had the you know most positive acclaim from customers, that have climbed the mortgage rankings, etc., are those that haven't accepted the limitations that they might believe to be true. There's a Stephen Bilko quote, um, who's an anti-apartheid activist, that the first weapon of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. And so if you're <laughs> able to believe, yeah, I picked that up from Mercio Vishal. And it's true. I mean, ultimately, if you're unable to believe the limitations that others uh, believe you have, then you can take it as far as you need to go. Yeah, that is good. And also something that you said earlier, it reminded me, and I'm going to botch this quote, but the more I know, the more I learn, the less that I know. Yes, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
So what has been your approach to, I mean, so the demands with what you guys are doing at the rapid speed that you're growing, that's a lot of pressure. What has been your approach to building out your teams? Like, is, is this, you have a big funnel method? Like for, if there's another, you know, head of talent that's listening right now and they're, you know, uh, engaged with a VC firm that's got some resources behind them and they need to kind of replicate what it is that you're doing, what advice would you have? I think advice, uh, advice can be dangerous. I think uh, my general view is that your cultural strategy comes from your business strategy. And so it's hard to have a one size fits all model, especially to tricky gray area questions like talent. Ultimately, I tend to think of talent strategy as growth strategy, which to me means really looking at it, yes, as a funnel, um, but also as a series of conversations, a series of experiments where you're trying to prove and disprove different hypotheses. For us, the biggest challenge was when we came in, we weren't sure if we're going to try to build a team to hire 30 people a month or 30 people a week. Ultimately, wound up being more than both of those. But what it started with was really interrogating the basics. How long does it take to fill a role? How long does it take to find the right person? How many people that aren't a fit today do we have to talk to? How do we get those people that weren't a fit today to want to come back in tomorrow? How do we get them to tell their friends? And so the sum of all the work of the department really does center around candidate experience. And if you have the right recruiters that are listening, that are paying attention to what candidates are telling you and giving them even the little changes that they're asking for can go a long way in building a process that is meaningful and produces the results that you want. I think a lot of places get in their head of like, you know, this is the right, this is the only way to do it. For us, you know, we were faced with the problem uh, really granularly of, you know, interviewing all these folks that were coming to us. We had too few interviewers. So, you know, we needed to train more interviewers. We needed to get them up to speed, et cetera. But then we started hosting these big interview blitz days and we started getting feedback that folks were running late, that folks were feeling discombobulated going from a case study to a more a cultural conversation. And so we spent a lot of time trying to revamp that. And so even the little things of creating a space for candidates to ask questions between interviews, having a place for them to go that feels a little bit like a rec room where they can get a vibe for what we're like, makes them feel as though they're already part of the team and that they can put their guard down, which in most cases leads to outperformance in interviews. And so all those little things tend to add up over time. But it starts with the basics of having a process and being able to really execute it flawlessly. And it sounds to me like what it might have been from day one has augmented somewhat differently. So I guess also the answer, it's a work in progress. Without a doubt, yeah. I think if you're being honest to your craft, um, it kind of never ends. There's always an opportunity to take it from an F to a C, from a C to an A. And so we're doing a lot of work to try and get more explicit around what we're improving, what we're evolving, having candidate journeys and roadmaps and otherwise. That's great. What do you do to hone your craft? Like, how have you gotten to where you are? Is uh, some of it, you know, just your gumption or is it books, podcasts? Is it interviewing other leaders? I think I'm open to learning, um, maybe sometimes to a fault, but I'm constantly reading articles, constantly trying to figure out kind of where the conversation is and where it's going. The opportunity for learning comes from, yes, interviewing others, et cetera. It's hard for me to point to non 
N of one personal role models as like, oh, this thing really changed my mind. Because ultimately, I think I'm a little bit more on the Myers-Briggs, a P than a J. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to say specifically, this is what shaped me versus that. It's kind of the sum of all these conversations, including this one. Mm. Happy to be a data point in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> right. um, how important is being able to develop these good relationships with people to your success as well as just the success of the group and what it is that you're looking to build here? Yeah, we're in a place where we don't have at all times kind of the best attribution for why this is something that worked or this didn't work. And so I think a lot of the conversation is often like not about blame or credit, but it's about acknowledging reality and acknowledging where we are. And so I think our company mission is kind of rooted in that same ethos of not settling, of really figuring out kind of where we are and then building on that. I think if you ever let yourself believe that everything's set, that's um, when you start to fade. I think, you know, that's something we, we borrow from Amazon's principles where this relentlessness in it always being day one, I think is critical. And I think that's been constant in a lot of organizations that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of is this belief that there's always something to improve. There's always something to do better. True. You mentioned something that I want to touch on and you talked about the company mission. When it comes to talent, how important, I mean, you're you're clearly passionate about this, about the mission. How important is that when it comes to recruiting and just talent development in general is that? I think you need to believe in what you're selling. I think, you know, whichever organization I've been a part of, you know, there's been part of me that I found in that organization. And so unless you're able to, you know, look at your work and recognize yourself in it, it's going to be a challenging situation uh, because I think eventually that delta between who you want to be and where you are is going to get too much. I think a lot of folks tend to look at their careers as, you know, eventually, like once I know the law, I'll be a lawyer. If I, you know, eventually I'll know how to do finance, I'll be a banker or whatever it is. And there's definitely a big balance between being somebody and doing things. Let me ask you this. What was the best advice someone ever gave you? It's a hard thing to pin down, but I think uh, one of the things I remember like really ground my gears, like when I was going off to college way back was all these folks saying, these will be the best four years of your life. And I think, you know, it's this sort of generic advice that you, you get from time to time. And then I remember I'd grown up making uh, stained glass windows. My uncle said something to the effect, uh, who had taught me how to make windows, had said something to the effect of like, don't let it be. And so have fun, but make sure like whatever life you live is more than those four years. And I think that kind of would stay with me because sometimes people tend to put a lot of pressure on this job or this relationship or this project or whatever it is. And kind of if you extrapolate that to really thinking broadly about life is long, like you'll get there for some it's short, for some it's long, but eventually like if you kind of keep on that path, you'll wind up where you want to be. Couldn't agree with you more. I love the fact don't fall into someone else's box because that was their best four years. <laughs> you know, like, And then the next four years will be your best four years. And then following after that, whatever works for you. Yeah, so, you can't so, spend too much time focused on the LinkedIn profile. No. <laughs> it uh, tends to miss the, mistake the, the, you know, the map for the territory. Yeah. We're coming close on time here. I'm, I'm a big quote guy. I love quotes. I think they just speak to me. They articulate things sometimes better than I can. Pretty much anyone can articulate better than I can, but I'm a big fan of quotes and I was curious to get your perspective on the quote, it's not the numbers that drive the culture, it's the culture that drives the numbers. 
Yeah, without a doubt. The take I always look to that with is that people often think of success as seeing the achievement, but they don't see all of the small achievements uh, leading up to it. You know, whether it's like the book you read, whether it's a push-up you did, whether it's the piece of advice someone gave you, the reason you're able to put that number up is because of everything you have invested in yourself and everything others have invested in you. So I think that the numbers tell where the story is today, but I'm usually, particularly in the business of talent, more interested in the story from yesterday. Yeah, the story. All right, one more question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you've got some great insights, some great answers. You've obviously been impacted, you know, people along the way have impacted you in a variety of different ways. Is there anyone outside of your family that's had the biggest overall impact on your career? Good question. It's hard for me to put it down to one person, to be honest. I can think of, you know, past managers. Yeah, I can think of... a couple. Yeah, throw out a couple. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I worked for um, this one guy at Bridgewater who was a senior investment researcher. And to put it affectionately, uh, he wasn't an easy person to work with, but he had tremendously high standards, tremendous amount of insight. And I remember one of the takeaways I had from working with him was this idea that ultimately what you are is the sum of the decisions you've made really believing that there's a long tail to every email you write, every interaction you have, every candidate you interview. And now that I've been through a couple of jobs uh, and a couple of opportunities since then, I think I've really seen that come through with whether it's colleagues, whether it's the person I interviewed for Wayfair now coming back. I think it's a really hard thing, I think, to keep in mind in a world where you're always on, you're always sending too many emails, you're always responding to too many slacks. How do you really preserve the sanctity of kind of every interaction? How do you leave people better than where you found them? That is good. You know what? I am going to ask you one more question just because you did mention something that made me think of another question. My interaction with you, I mean, you were always, the level of responsiveness is fantastic, especially with everything that you've got going on. Is that something that someone said, hey, it's important to get back to people right away? Is that just your nature? <laughs> or wh- where does this come from? Because it, candidly, I mean, a gripe that I have with some people, is, which is frustrating, is they don't get back or they take a while. And by the time whatever the ask was or whatever that you needed or whatever the reason that you were reaching out to them, by the time they've gotten back to you, it's old hat. Yeah, I mean, I worked with, uh, with a recruiter and still work with him to this day, um, uh, who had initially met at Bridgewater, who his main complaint with everyone was that they didn't respond quickly enough, they didn't engage. And I think I've taken that to heart. I would hope that more folks have the same positive impression that you do, but I think that's unfortunately not the reality. I think there's always someone I'm letting down or someone I'm behind on. But I think my commitment is always to be there in those substantive ways. Because I think if even if I don't have an answer, if I acknowledge that I don't, or this, now's not the right time, or now's you know this might be when I can get you an answer, I think integrity goes a long way in those interactions. And so for me, I think it's a balance between preserving the integration with work and life that I want to have, and also really acknowledging that on the end of the line, whoever I'm not getting back to or getting back to is just doing the same. Yeah. I mean, I just tip my hat. I endeavor to do the exact same thing and I just know how hard it is for me. And you've got a lot more balls in the air than I do. So I really, you know, for all those people that aren't giving you the kudos, I'm giving you the kudos, Arthur. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Arthur, I I gotta, I really thank you again. It's your Sunday night. I don't want to uh, monopolize it. I want you to go enjoy. It's a beautiful night out there. 
I appreciate you coming on the show and I'm excited to share you, your story, what's going on at Better with everyone that's listening. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Thank you, Adam. Do well. Cheers. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.